And which song would you recommend, a Fuji song, for listeners who want to discover more? King Sonny Ade. Uh, there was a song called, is it Appreciation? I think I really like that Welcome to Books and Rhymes, the podcast that celebrates the joy of reading by flipping the script with a musical twist on your favourite books. I invite guests to pair books with songs or albums that spark the same emotional connection. I'm your host, Sarah, a West African in the diaspora with a deep abiding love for the written word. Join me as I take you on a musical journey through the works of new and classic authors. Today's episode is an insightful and stimulating conversation with Caleb Femi, a poet, educator and multidisciplinary artist whose debut collection of poetry, Poor, celebrates and interrogates youth culture and masculinity while articulating the complex lived experiences of working class migrant communities in the UK. We use the music of Burner Boy, Jay Huss, Wizkid, Giggs, Sonny Ade and so much more to explore the problematic relationship between architecture and social stratification, the importance of finding and reading resonant poetry and the unspoken conversation between photography and poetry. Listen to Caleb Femi's playlist via link in the episode description. Subscribe, rate and review Books and Rhymes the podcast on Apple Podcasts and your favourite podcast listening platform. I am extremely pleased to announce yours an international giveaway of two not one but two signed copies of Caleb Femi's collection of poetry poor in collaboration with Ed PR relations yes fam you heard that right I have collaborated with Ed PR to post signed copies of poor to a lucky winner anywhere in the world. For a chance to win one signed copy of the book, simply subscribe to the mailing list via link in the episode description. Once again, for a chance to win one signed copy of the book, simply subscribe to the mailing list which is in the episode description. To win the second signed copy of the book, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Books and Rhymes, where we will post entry details. The winner will be announced on Monday 16th of November. Enjoy the episode. Officially, welcome to Books and Rhymes, the podcast. For season two of the podcast, I decided to do something which I thought was missing in the sort of literary archiving space, which is getting writers to pronounce their names so we know how to pronounce your names properly. How do you pronounce your name? Well, my, my, my full name is Caleb Femi. I guess generally I'm known as Caleb Femi. Why did you choose to go with Caleb Femi as opposed to Caleb Femi? As a teacher, because Femi is generally it's known as a first name. So a lot of the Nigerian students who I was teaching um, during my time as a teacher just, just called me Femi as my first name. They just called me Femi. Just they, There was no Mr. in front of it, it was just Femi. Then when there was a conversation about why do you let your students just call you that um, and other white teachers not really understanding the, the camaraderie between me and my Nigerian students, they were like, a sir needs to be in front of it. In one funny way or the other, one day it just turned into Mr. Femi and then it just ran. And then um, Caleb Femi just was born out of that. But generally, I'm easy. Call me Caleb Femi, call me Caleb Femi. As long as you're like, 
my kin, I'm fine with it. Everyone else outside of it, it's a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with the publication of your collection of poetry, poor, everyone is now kin, isn't it? Because they're calling you Caleb Femi. So in keeping with Books and Rhymes, the podcast, I sent two categories of questions and I ask you to pair these questions with either books and songs or just songs themselves. The purpose of Books and Rhymes, the podcast is to give writers and readers and people an opportunity to talk about their engagement with books, the impact of books on them. And for writers is for us to dig deep into their process of writing, their inspiration, and also to talk about the influences. And music is just a way of opening up a different dimension of engaging with your work, your reading, and your influences. Today's conversation, Caleb Femi, is to celebrate your debut collection of poetry, Poa. Hello, hi. And the purpose of this conversation is to deep dive into you as a poet, how you became a poet. Um, But you are not just a poet, you are a multidisciplinary artist. You use um, Mm. photography, you're a teacher, and you also write and perform poetry. And I'm sure there are also some engagement with arts that you do that I haven't mentioned. So I'm excited to find that out. Um, (laughs) But primarily we're going to be using your collection of poetry, Poor, as the entry point into our conversation. As such, the first question I asked you was to pick a song that adequately conveys your emotion when you first held your debut collection of poetry, Poor, in your hand. (laughs) This was easy. This was an easy one. The song that really encapsulates that experience of just holding it, the finished version in my hand was Burner Boy's Ye. This one I got to be the job, Me, I no get time, I did that, but that. cover my face, calling me la, but Biggie man, we know the way I, but Tell me, tell me, Monica, what's it going The song is is one of my all-time favorite songs. More than the just how beautiful the rhythm on a musical level, it's just it's beautiful, but also just the, the message behind it. There's a feeling that I feel like everyone should be able to embrace as humans. And it's a feeling that is rarely afforded to people who come from working class backgrounds. It's rarely afforded to people who are often neglected by their their governments, people who are marginalized and have a lack of opportunities, who see the, the standard of living that other people get to enjoy and rarely get to step into those shoes and and enjoy Faji, you get me yeah and 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 i think sometimes it's all right to celebrate yourself to celebrate your your achievements you know it goes beyond materialism and, and all of that but sometimes you just want to have a good time you just want to go out have a good time you want to feel expensive not that the things that you you acquire materially are are reflections of the value that you hold for yourself but they're small token just towards the lavishness that everyone should experience at least once in their life you know and that that lavishness doesn't necessarily um, have to be about exploiting other people in order to attain it sometimes the lavishness of of working really really hard on something and then that thing being achieved. And once you achieve that thing, you, you reward yourself through celebration. You reward yourself 
through gifting yourself sometimes, you know, it's a love language onto yourself. So I see that song as a as an anthem of, of self-love. <laughs> so how so how then did you feel speaking of self-love faggy living lavishly poor is a very i mean the title is uncompromising it is poor if one is judging the collection by the title one can assert that the collection is exploring a culture of deficit in most in many different ways yeah you have spoken that burner boys song ye articulates your feelings when you held the book in your hand and in your articulation of that feeling you use words that evoke plentiful yeah rejoicing fullness mm. wholeness completion mm. <laughs> do you see do, do, do you see that do you see that sort of contradiction there do you see that disparity could you speak on that how does what is yeah your emotional space what does that emotional state speak to the collection given the title? I mean, with the title, my objective with that was to was to evoke that strong feeling within people, was to create a, a, a platform in which people then have this conversation about poorness, about who is poor. Um, what does it mean to be poor in the sense of do we see the do we see poorness as being poor in in in, in a financial um, on a financial basis, or are you poor in spirit? Are you poor in health? Are you poor in friends? Are you poor in, in community? Are you poor in peace of mind, you know? Um, and also, how do we see this idea of poor? How do we see poor people? What lies behind that word? In order for someone to be poor, someone has to be rich because it, these are relative terms, right? How do people become poor? in a world that there is an ample abundance and there are too many people without and so few people living in excess, you know? I wanted the title to challenge so many preconceptions about, about being poor. But Marley says, had this really interesting conversation where this um, British uh, journalist asks him if he's rich and he says, how do you measure richness? Because if you're talking about bank account, that's not how I measure richness. I think about the richness in my friends, the richness in my family and my community. I mean, essentially, the, what the book does is a, it's a love letter to, to a community of people who live life in spite of the circumstances, who celebrate themselves, who enjoy the wholesomeness and the collectiveness of their community. They lean on it. They use their imagination as tools to survive and even thrive in spite of the, the lack of opportunity, the lack of, of government funding. I've always said to myself, like growing up, the idea of poor has always been an accusatory one. Like you are poor, like it's your fault. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, all right, cool. If I'm poor, who has made me poor? What has made me poor? How do we challenge that? And therefore, you should never, never look at the poor with content. You should never, don't even look at them with sympathy. Look at them and feel enraged for them. I'm going to ask you this question because I know you're a teacher. Hearing you talk about it, the way you have expressed how society has conditioned us to think about 
the have-nots, as it were, or poor people. Mm. I think have-nots is like, oh, they mm -hmm. have-nots. What does that even mean? It's like Chinese yeah, sugar exactly. filter. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> you know the way we, we, we sort of engage with the poor or disengage with them, more specifically, to use a, a perfect example, homeless people or rough sleepers. Mm. Perfect example. Mm. There's a certain disdain with which we look upon them whether intentionally or unintentionally. And there's a certain psychological recalibration you do when you catch yourself behaving in a less than sympathetic way towards them and in a less than human way towards them or treating them in an inhumane way. So hearing you talk about the intent behind the collection and the intention behind the title of the collection is to get people to rethink and to mm. challenge their perspectives on your disengagement with the poor and also this self-importance and this feeling of superiority over other people this is what i received from what you have said so my question then to you is this what is the philosophical framework for the collection what philosophy guided the collection i think for sure it was a uh, psychogeography that was at the heart of, of, of the collection. It was an investigation into how, um, what structural powers have molded the conditions in which have festered so much sorrow, has festered so much lacking, has, has festered all the, the, the dark things that come with living in an impoverished area, specifically looking at how architecture and design has has led that um has led has has yeah has led that basically um and this is to say how does how does the the houses that have been built um how have they contributed in the way that the residents see themselves how they see the world how the world sees them how they interact with with one another and the impact it has in shaping their psyche shaping their their mental health as well most public housing houses are, are brutalist in their architecture they're drab they're they're imposing they have this element that feels almost like a prison the design of it is insular it's to keep people within the space shut them in rather than open them out into the world it makes you feel like you're not part of the city and with that says it tells you about the place in the world, the place in the city that you are in. It tells you a lot about the class that you're in and what spaces are inherently for you and what spaces are, are not for you and how to, what to expect um, in life, how to adjust your dreams in order to understand what is attainable for someone who has come from a certain area. When you leave these areas and you go into more affluent areas, you don't feel like you belong there. And there's a reason why materialistically it's different the design of the space is different um during the lockdown it was a really good um example how the space in which you live in has such an impact in your in in, in your everydayness we were given an hour a, a day to go outside and and stretch our legs exercise or whatever the prime minister called it when you go outside and the parks are closed you don't have access to greenery. You don't have access to nature. You're inside all the time. You've come out, you want some fresh air. Instead, you're met with 
big concrete blocks. You're met with uninspiring facades. Everything feels very daunting. Uninspiring is just the biggest, the biggest word. Do you want to go out into nature? Do you want to go out and feel part of nature? Especially around that time, it was spring. How do you mark spring? You know, I think that's an interesting conversation that I like to have with people. How do you mark spring? You should mark spring spring through nature, right? You see the leaves are changing. There are birds. All these things tell you it's, it's, it's spring. It does something to your psyche. If you're black, you have a more access to vitamin D, which improves your system in general. But then if you live in an area that is just devoid of all these things, that has these long towers that block light, that has a limited access to, to greenery, and all of that. How do you enjoy and engage with the natural transitioning of Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Seasons. We see the people who have private access to gardens. They have access to nature. They have all of that kind of stuff. And that tells you a lot about psychogeography, how, how the intention um, behind certain architectural buildings and, and designs is actually quite harmful to residents. What is psychogeography and how did you first encounter the term? In a nutshell, psychogeography is the relationship between geography and, and the mind of the, the inhabitants of that geographical space. It looks at how urban developments or urban environments look at the, the playfulness and the drifting uh, amongst people. It looks at the methods in which people's lives are impacted and, and, and shaped. I came across it a couple of years ago. It, it's usually associated with Marxist and, and anarchist theory that looks at like a surrealist architecture or situationist and all these kind of like isms and schisms. It really focuses on on the actual like Sorry, I'm <laughs> cracking up because your cat is just giving us some serious so you Yes, cat. your cat is like, meow, 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 meow. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, so you're talking about psychogeography being part of Marxism and also speaking directly to surrealist building and brutalist buildings. With this podcast, I like to open up readers to new books that they otherwise may not have heard of. Is there a book you would recommend to people who want to read more on psychogeography or a particular thinker whose work they may want to engage with to better understand what psychogeography is so that they can articulate and relate this conversation to their environment as well? I mean, I definitely would get them to, to look at um, environmental psychology first. 
it looks at the interplay between individuals and their surroundings. It examines how their natural environment shapes them as individuals. And then from understanding that, it kind of then would then move into actually looking at urban environments specifically and public housing and all of those like more in-depth conversations. In the context of our conversation about psychogeography, a lot of the works in Hoare speak to architecture, like architecture plays a huge role in this collection. It was something that I noted whilst reading it. There is a particular poem titled A Designer Talks of Home slash A Resident Talks of Home 1 and that same work is replicated at the end of the book so it more it's almost bookends the collection. So Caleb, would you mind reading A Designer Talks of Home slash A Resident Talks of Home 1 in your collection in the context of what we're speaking about, environmental psychology, psychogeography and brutalism, surrealism. So if you could please give context to this piece, your process of writing it and why you felt it important to include it in the collection. So in this piece, I think it, it, it captures one of the biggest problems when thinking about architecture, which is the intent of the designer, the intent of the architecture, ar architect behind uh, a building. This is how this building functions and this is how it's going to impact and shape the lives of the people who have to live in this building. So that's like all the theory when they make it and it's on paper. Then you've got the real actualization of that of of those designs when the building is built and then people have to live in it now the two have to match up the original intention of the architect has to match up with the lived experience of the people who live inside this space for example if you build a luxurious airport lounge right the intention is to make the people the customers who are going to use it feel relaxed you want them to feel like they're in a space of luxury etc etc when people come and use the airport lounge that's how they feel right it relaxes them they feel like they're in a state of luxury etc etc you can then put a tick next to that and say well done mr architect or mrs architect or or whoever you have achieved your goal great however a lot of the time in public housing there's a disconnect there's an intention behind building uh, a, a public housing state right and then the lived experience of the residents never matches up with that so this is me just putting um together uh two conversations uh one conversation is is by a designer who is talking about um her her intention behind building we then hear from a resident who actually has to live there and then we compare the two there are two speakers in this and they take alternate lines. A designer talks of home slash a resident talks of home one. We spend 87% of our lives inside buildings. I was conceived in these wars in 87. How they are designed really affects how we feel. The wallpaper was here before me. I don't claim it. How we behave. Mum says there is a good home. When I was little, I used to peel the yellow from the wallpaper. Design is not just a visual thing. It's a thought process. Once I swallowed an apple pip and a guy from the top floor told me it's a skill. An apple tree will grow out from my belly. Design is a tool to enhance our humanity, a frame for life. 
Don't that mean that I'll be the first tree boy on the estate? Putting the human experience at the beginning of the process. The guy says trees live as long as boys do here. That's why we have concrete. Tactile memory. At the back of our block, there is a ward full of RIPs, a thousand unlived lives of boys and trees. Empathy is the cornerstone of design. You know the architecture that designed this estate killed himself. It's all about showmanship and theatricality. Mum reckons that's why they covered the rock with cladding. It's about how things feel and smell as much as how they look. Cause concrete smells like a siege. When it rains, I like to imbue people with a sense of well-being, empowerment, gentle joyfulness. Pretend I live, translate the future life of a building into design language. On the 19th floor, you can see everything but the future. Those great long corridors reduce people. We see the same view even when we're not looking and we're usually not looking. To see that a building could have such an impact on the way people felt, on the way they interacted. At the scene, we know who did it. We keep our mouths shut when boy them come with their... It's about interrogation and empathy. Materials are the things that tell the truth. If these walls could talk, our ears would bleed. Humans are naturally drawn to the material. Is fire a material? We discover the world, world through our senses. Some animals only map the world through one sense and so can survive smoke. Our materials speak to us. Concrete makes me feel safe. When I leave my block, I don't feel safe. It's a conversation between, indirect conversation between, between two, two people in two different times before a building is built, the intention behind it, which is the designer says it's, it's about empathy and it's about imbuing people with hope, with a, ge a gentle joyfulness. But then as the designer speaks, um, we, see, uh, we see that that's not the case. There's a disconnect there. The resident's experience isn't one necessarily of, of joyfulness and all the things that the, the designer expected to impact people who have to live there. What triggered you to write this particular, I know we've talked about psychogeography, but I'm speaking about what triggered you to write this particular piece and how did you decide to craft it the way you do? I say that because the way you write most of the poems in this collection is quite experimental. It deviates from the traditional verse format of poetry you write um, like this is an alternative conversation between a creator and the consumer. It's a poetry and dialogue. And also the, the architect's words are written in normal text and the resident's words are italicized. You, the reader, you know that. You can see it, you're reading it, but it's, it's, about, it's about the structure of the poem, then the form of the poem, the deliberate choices you make. I noticed that when you were reading the piece, you read the line, the resident says, at the scene, we know who did it. Keep our mouth shut when boy them come with their... And the architect says, it's about interrogation and empathy. The next line, the resident laughs, but you did not laugh. 
when you read out the, the work. So poetry on paper, poetry being communicated, it's very different. The visual representation of the work, it is also different because, as I said earlier on, the the architect's works is really it's normalized text and the resident is italicized meaning and usually when we encounter italicized words in texts and in literature they are you it is used to highlight the other it is used to highlight one who does not belong or a word that is out of the norm so please elaborate why did you choose to write this piece in the way that you do take us through your internal processes what did you take away what did you include um how many drafts did it take and how did you come to the final conclusion did you have external editors external people who assisted you in in i don't know who sort of contributed to it so with this the, the approach in in this was generally i've been thinking about newness in in poetry not even just in poetry in, in literature in general we come from rich a rich tradition of of literature there are amazing people who have come before us and have whose work have become uh, a blueprint in how we write and how we how we read texts who have formulated techniques that hundreds of years later we still use and we still employ and I think it's important as writers today to contribute something new, to experiment and to try new ways of, of writing, because what are you what are you contributing to the to the to the canon? What are you contributing to the the, the landscape of, of literature? All you're doing is taking, 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 using people's techniques and not trying to say, all right, cool, I'm standing on the shoulders of these giants, but let me lay the path. Um, in creating a new different way of, of doing things or communicating. What I'm doing here is not revolutionary in, in any sense of the word, but it's the actively thinking about newness and how to convey an experience, convey a human condition. For me, understanding that there was a disconnect between an architect's intention and um, uh, a, a, a resident's reality of the, of the design was something that people don't pay attention enough because it does it doesn't happen immediately and also it, it happens in different spaces so for example the architecture has this conversation before the building is built in a private space it's happening in an office somewhere there are a limited amount of people that hear the intention and that okay it however the lived experience of residents happens way after, years after the initial conversation from the architect. It also happens in a very public space. Anything that happens to a, a resident that is in the papers, it is talked about publicly because these are the conditions that people have to live in. A great example of that is Grenfell, you know? There was a private conversation about cladding that happened with only a few people in a private space in an office somewhere. However, the burning of the Grenfell estate was a public one. It happened, we all watched it on TV, you know? We saw it on the internet. Uh, we saw the residents and how they feel and we heard them cry and all of that kind of stuff there. No one is going all the way back to bring that, that it's a conversation of immediacy doesn't happen because they're years apart. So I'm just trying to collapse the, the time in between those conversations and put them right next to each other so that we're just a lot more conscious 
about design and about the intention behind the buildings that we move move and move around in and we sleep in um that we have children in etc etc you've spoken about grenfell and you've spoken a lot about the time lapse between the convers between the architect's intention and the resident's experience and you reference grenfell specifically seems grenfell has been showing up a lot in contemporary works by british writers more specifically iranis Okoje, whose short story grace jones won this year's kane prize for african writing spoke ex explicitly about grenfell tower and now you are in a way relating your work to grenfell tower what is grenfell tower um could you please explain it for our listeners um grenfell tower is uh it's a council estate it's a residential building it's heavily populated by working class black people and other ethnicities but there's a high percentage of, of black people who live there there was a fire in in the building one night a few years ago and due to the the cladding so the cladding is this material that was supposed to be used to protect it kind of covers the whole building and essentially what it does it's supposed to protect the building and the residents from the spread of fires so there's a fire in one apartment then that the cladding will make sure that the the fire is contained within that um, within that uh, apartment only however on the night where there was a fire it spread throughout the entire building and there was a lot of lives lost and we we watched this this tower that was about i can't remember how many floors it was probably a, between 12 and 15 or maybe more i can't remember it's this like huge skyscraper in and it's just burned you know and there was a a lot of people within it and the government have not held anyone accountable since then it was quite horrific because there were many horror stories of parents throwing their children out from the window. I mean, so people, please just Google Grenfell Tower, which is G -R -E, spelled G-R-E-N-F-E-L-L -L Tower in London. It is a physical manifestation of the conversations that you are having, not just in the piece that you read, a designer talks of home slash a resident talks of home, but also it also touches on a lot of the themes that are addressed in this collection, Poor. I asked you to pick a song that adequately communicates your experience of getting poor published. Uh, yeah, this one was a this one was a tough one. It's less about the song and more about the two lines that I have like stuck with that have stayed with me. The first time I heard it, it stayed with me forever, and it's um from Frank Ocean's Nike's or Nike. I guess because Americans say Nike. Uh, we um, say Nike, please. We say exactly. We say Nike. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's there's a two there's two lines from that song, um, which are we'll let you guys prophesy. We gonna see the future first. We'll let you guys prophesy. We'll let you guys prophesy. We gonna see the future first. We'll let you guys prophesy. We gonna see the future first. And those two lines just, just stuck with me. They stuck with me a lot when when thinking about the book and knowing that it was it was gonna be published. And yeah, there was just something about that idea of letting people say what they want to say. You know, we'll let you prophesy, but 
it's us that will see the future. The control of conversations ultimately will come back to us. We will control our own narrative. You can tell us how you think we are going to be. You can think that you're the one who dictates what our lives will look like, but it's us who will see it. Um, and it's us who will live it. And it's us who will take control of our narrative. And I felt that for this book, it, it relates related so much because the way that working class black people um, are villainized in this country, the way that they've given this reductive story, terrible misrepresentation in the media is, is one that ultimately um, has never sat well with me. And I've always said that the more of us that can take control of our own narratives, the better. So talk us through your process of getting a book published. Did you solicit the publishers? Were you approached by a publisher or by an agent to get the work published? When you solicited or when you were approached, how did that translate to getting published? How long did it take you to put this collection together? So in a way, give us from the start to finish of your publishing journey. And also, if you can speak to those who aspiring poets or pe aspiring writers, people who want to also get the works published as well, what was your process like? I mean, uh, it, was a, it, it was a peculiar one. It took many years because of lots of reasons. How many years? It took about two years or two and a half years, I would say from conception to, to now the book. It started off with me having a manuscript in 2017 and I signed with an agent at the time. My agent solicited publishing houses. There was one in particular that I felt that I wanted the work to be published there and he felt that the work should be, should be published there as well. And that was, uh, that was Penguins. What does a poetry manuscript looks, look like? I think for me, because I read more prose and I read more fiction, that's my domain. And I'm like, yes, I get it, man. I know what you're doing. I like to think I'm the norm, but I may just be an anomaly. In the sense that I like to think that a lot more people are used to writing prose. You know, at school you write essays, yeah. you write stories, but we rarely engage more with poetry. So what does the process of getting a poetry collection publish look like and and how do you articulate what are the metrics for judging a a publication worthy works of poetry i think with with poetry it kind of is similar to putting together an album a, a collection is many many smaller poems which are like smaller worlds within themselves in the same way that an album has individual songs and all those songs have to feel cohesive the way the the way that they ordered has to feel like it's telling a particular journey it's taking people on a particular journey or, or telling a particular story the editing process and considering all of that that is difficult that is like what poems are needed what poems are not needed what poems can i cut away how do I shape this in a way that the reader will have this particular experience uh, whereas like prose you still have to do that in prose but prose you're largely like your approach on the plot is kind of how you shape everything with poetry there's a lot more dexterity and a lot more to to think about because do you want people to just open at any page and feel like they they can get something out of it or do you want them to feel like they have to read it from the start in a chronological order that you've set out for them Sometimes some poets just want you to be able to open up anywhere and 
take it, take that poem for what it is and that stands as an individual. Other times you kind of want there to be a, a journey. I like the analogy you've made, you make about poetry and music and um, poetry collection and an album collection. I like it because it speaks directly to poor. Because yeah. with poor, the in your the epigraph, you reference some musician. Well, you reference three key people. You reference a poem by T.S. Eliot, "My people, humble people who expect slash nothing," and then you reference Douglas Howell, the Caribbean British activist. You reference him and you quote him as saying, "As a consequence of which they must find money by these means." And then the last person you cite <laughs> is Jay Huss. Yeah. So you quote Jay Huss saying, if I die now, my mom got bumped by the juju man. Or in Nigerian accent, by the juju man. You know, mm -hmm. in British accent, by the juju man. By the juju man. <laughs> <laughs> by the babalao, you get me? <laughs> you know. So your collection begins in the epigraph with a musician being cited which song that song which which song by j-hoss did you extract that line from it wasn't even a song it was a black box freestyle which was um one of the like oldest like it was from like 2014 it was just like an online youtube freestyle that he did never took advice from no teachers and if these pagans finish me tell my niggas don't get angry car mommy's gonna phone the juju man up in gambia i don't know pastors no priests or no reference i stay paro i got beef with some old breadings two cheese i was purchasing the block but i still got my shanky for no banners on the just he said that and and there's something that stands out about that line to me like that line just encapsulates so much about the intergenerational conditions that we are living in um, and the extent that we go to, to, um, to rise up from the poverty that a lot of us come from, the protection that our, our parents are doing for us, you know, the extent that they will go to just to make sure that we have a better life than them and we don't stay in the same conditions that they stay in, you know? So it's like, yeah, like my man's mum went to the Babalao to, to protect him. It's a testament to her love. It's a testament to how much she wants her son to, to succeed and to, to thrive in life and to just stay alive. That's all we're trying to do in life, you know, stay alive. By any means necessary. Yeah, and also it was money that you have to pay do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're already impoverished and you're still paying money to, to maintain your life. And to secure your future as well. To secure your future, yeah. I mentioned j Hoss in your epigraph because you also mentioned other musicians in the collection of Poetry Poor as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that this, this collection, to me, I felt what you are doing is that you are making connection between... I feel like you are establishing an ancestry with your work to uh, to your predecessor and to people who have influenced you and inspired you and I'm going to explain that as our conversations go along but for now I'm going to focus on the musical influences on the collection so in your poem titled Gentle Youth you include an excerpt from a song by Frank Ocean and the excerpt mm -hmm. is New World New Sky That's So Blue Is Black Too and is from Frank mm. Ocean's carousel 
And then yeah. in code, this the poem after that one, you you reference Gucci Mane. Gucci Gucci. I don't yeah. know any song by Gucci Mane. <laughs> yeah. You can see, I'm just like, I went straight into auntie mode, Gucci Gang, and I'm like, no, that's the wrong one. <laughs> wrong one. Wrong person. And you also um, reference Kanye West as well. You reference his song, Ultra Light Beam. And in this particular song, um, you reference the song at the end of the collection. There's a Dizzy, Dizzy Rascal one. There's a Gigs one. There's a K-Trap one. Go on. There's a fellow one as well, fellow Coutinho. See? <laughs> what is the conversation between poor and music, given the artists that you have just referenced and the ones that I have picked out in the collection? They are doing what, what the collection is doing, which is reflecting the life and times of other people of impoverished people, people who who come from, from poor conditions, you know? Um, and I think that our day-to-day -day life is filled, is soundtracked by musicians. We take music very seriously in our culture, you know? And music, spoken word performances and poetry. I ask you to pick a, to tell us a book or a poet or a spoken word performance that sparks your love of poetry and pair it with a song that conveys the importance of poetry to you. There's a, a book by Kai Miller. It's a, it's a poetry collection. Um, it's called The Light Song of Light. Um, and it's a, it's a collection that really sets my soul on fire. It's a collection that I've always, I've always returned back to. I read that collection, I was like, okay, cool. Um, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this and I'm going to make this work. Warsan Shiri is someone whose work has always inspired me, especially at the early stages of, of my writing. Um, she's a phenomenal writer. Pairing it was a song that, that conveys the import of, of poetry to me. Now, this song is not necessarily because of its like uh, poetic qualities. It was the soundtrack of, of life. It was my favorite tune at the, at the time that I was playing again and again um, when I was reading the Kaimilla's collection. I could not think about that song without thinking about that collection and that time and the feeling of wanting to become um, uh, a full-time full poet. So that song is by Black Magic. It's called Repetition. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was introduced to that song when I went to visit. Uh, I went um, to conduct a research in Nigeria and I was staying at my mom's friend's um, place in Lagos. And her nephew was like, ah, you don't know anything. You don't know any Nigerian song. Let me introduce you to some Nigerian songs. <laughs> and it was like, you need to listen to Rekwete by Black Magic. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good time. <laughs> oh my goodness. It is so, okay, so because it was so arrogant, you know, this, this, uh, you know, this, my friend was like so arrogant in his approach, like, you need to, you don't know anything you need. So I was like, I hope this song is not good. But it was so good. And I was just like, seven, eight, nine. I wrote this one for you. Thanks for getting me inspired.
also why black magic and why requited by black magic so it's the song um instrumentally just captures you it seizes you that um is it a saxophone or trumpet the that the horn instrument the melody is just one that that just i don't know it just got me you know um i i, I love his voice i love just the uniqueness of it the raspiness of it there's like a quiet swagger about his voice and, and the way that he he sings it's a song that anywhere i play it someone says who is that it never gets ignored you talked about when you read um kai Mila's collection it was and and also was sanshiri's collections they were the collections that inspired you to to and you use the, the phrase full-time poetry we know that you are you were a teacher now, for myself, I struggled with poetry a lot. It wasn't until much later in life that I enjoyed poetry. And it wasn't in, until my introduction to Salt by Nayira Wahid that I was like, oh my goodness, someone is speaking to me. Because before then, at school, you know, you're reading dead poets, dead white poets, like your Seamus Heaney. I don't, what 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 does Ireland have to do with me? I don't know. I'm in London. <laughs> I'm from Nigeria. Please. Yeah. And even mm -hmm. our poets, like your Shoyinkas and your Achebe, because Achebe mm -hmm. did um, write poetry as well, and even Ben Okri, who also writes poetry as well. Their their works are so. I find the works quite disconnected and quite uh, too esoteric for my liking. I don't feel that it speaks to me directly. And so hearing you talk about your decision to want to go into poetry to pursue the profession of the poet as a career and also hearing your inspirations as contemporary young poets because Wesan Shiria was quite young when she published Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth. The world was introduced to her poetry through social media platform of Tumblr because mm -hmm. that was where she mm -hmm. first started writing yeah. her poetry and Kai Miller yeah. is a Caribbean, um, a poet of Caribbean origin whose work speaks of contemporary experiences. Mm -hmm. So my mm -hmm. question to you is then is what was your first introduction to poetry? Was your first encounter with poetry that of dead white men and or women like myself and like that mm -hmm. of countless others? And how did you then make mm -hmm. the transition from these dead white encounters or these encounters with dead white poet to this burst of color? with contemporary yeah. poets. I, I, I like that you said burst of colour. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, my first encounter with poetry was definitely dead white poet, dead white male poet. Um, it's school, that's all you do, isn't it? The Seamus Heaney, who was the, oh, what's his name? The war poet. Don't ask me their okay. names because... Um... Yeah, it was a lot of like white war poetry or um, like T.S. Eliot, um, W.B. Yeats and all these are like other just poets who had, who I felt like just had no relevance to the conditions who I, that I was going through and therefore I really, really couldn't really access it or I didn't want to access it um for for a long time there's something about just being in a school environment that just makes you makes you just roll your eyes at anything you're given because it feels like work and it doesn't feel like a source of enjoyment you know especially when it, so especially when it doesn't resonate with you 
Exactly, yeah. So it, it didn't resonate with me. I saw it as a necessity to get my GCSEs. <laughs> um, but be, apart from that, it was it was um, it was something that I didn't it didn't speak to my soul. I didn't want to revisit it in my in my. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. In time. Um, but generally, though, when I really think about it, I think about people like Ebenezer Obey. I think about King Sunny Ade. I think about Fela. I think there's so many, like, orators, Yoruba orators. Fuji music, for me, was, like, one of my first encounters of, of poetry because of the way that they orate, the way that they speak, the way that they put words together, the way that they communicate, the way that they celebrate people. There, there was something about just like traditional Yoruba sayings that really, really spoke to me. And also there's something about the house. I was born in Nigeria, I was born in Kanu. I grew up in Dross. So I spoke Hausa and there was something about the, the language structure and the, the way that um sentences are used and how they use that in hindsight was poetry you know so although in one sense my first encounter of quote-unquote poetry was in a british school and i met it with disinterest when i really think about it there is something about my heritage that has always been infused with poetry it's only now that i'm appreciating so just a fuji song for people who are interested, <laughs> Enel, who are interested in, in, or a Fuji song that resonates with you, that for people who are interested in, 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 in discovering that genre of music. Oh. Off the dome, off the dome. Don't even try to do something. Off the, don't don't oh. goggles, no goggles. You mentioned Obe, oh. you mentioned Obe, you mentioned, you mentioned Sonia D. In fact, I'm already mm-hmm. thinking of an Obe song in my head. See, that's how much what I'm, song are you I'm not telling about? you. I'm not the one who mentioned Ebenezer <laughs> You did. <laughs> you did. I mean, it's 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 oh, it's it's difficult. There's there's a song. Uh, the other one that's in my head is um, I am me today. I am me today. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. What's that song called? I think it's I am me today. I don't. Know. <laughs> okay. Cool. <laughs> you know what? Because one thing I'm I'm quite sad about is the the lack of like. Fuji music on on Spotify and there are um they're they're there 100 but they're not there for example if you was to google um obey if you was to google him on YouTube there's so many yeah 
And then if you go on Spotify, there's only two songs. No, there isn't. That's an album. Ebenezer Bay has many different, um, has different names in Spotify. Ah, uh, yes. why? What's wrong with people? Why? <laughs> why are they doing this? <laughs> why? Because he, he went under different isn't names. Isn't that sometimes it's Commander or Chief? Sometimes or, it's Ebenezer like, B. Sometimes it is Commander yeah. Ebenezer B. Then it is Chief Commander Ebenezer B. So you've got to use um, different titles um, for him. Yeah. I learned that earlier on. And so the, the, he has a lot of songs on Spotify. Obviously not as much as not as much as YouTube because Ebenezer Bay, uh, Sonia Day, and then even Felakuti, they have a lot of live performances. So they're live performances, you can get them on YouTube, but obviously Spotify is not, doesn't capture as much live performances. And I usually prefer the live ones. Mm. I use, there's something about them that just feels so immediate. I, I can feel because that I remember the party party, the party your mom exactly. took you to. The one best, it's okay. Mm-hmm. We know them. We know them. <laughs> <laughs> we know the one best. It's okay. Okay, so um, which song would you recommend? A Fuji song for listeners who want to discover more. Um. All right. Let's let's stick with a uh, King Sunny Ade. Uh, there was a song called Is it Appreciation? I think I really like that. Okay, so you've talked about dead white poets and also you were talking about Nigerian and Hausa poets, your Yoruba, your Sonia Day's Commander Abinuza Obey, and then you also talked about the Hausa influence as well, your encounter with Hausa poets. How does that then connect with the the 2000s and sort of contemporary poets like Kai Miller and Wasan Shiri? How did you feel when you first encountered Kai Miller's work and Warsan Shiri's work. What did you feel that? Because I know how I felt when I read Salt. Nayira Wahid in Salt showed me what I was missing, what I didn't know I was missing, but was I was very obviously um, deficient. So how did Warsan Shiri's work and Kai Miller's work speak to you? How did you feel when you first encountered it? I guess for me it was. You remember those Tumblr days, you know, when Tumblr was was really a, a respectful place, a respectable place to to go and and get your education. Not now. Um, <laughs> not now. <laughs> but yeah, uh, so the uh, like two thousand one, two thousand sorry, two thousand and ten, two thousand eleven, twelve, thirteen. Um, you'll just be scrolling through Tumblr, and then you'll just see like either an excerpt or short poem Nahira Wahid is, is very known for for her for her short punchy um poetry um and you'll just see it uh at Warsan as well there was something about Warsan's work that felt like she was talking about um my friends 
she felt like I was her, you know, she was part of my friendship circle. I was part of my her friendship circle. And that was something that I didn't really see. I've never seen before. You know? It felt like I was a whole new, I was rebuilding myself from the ground up. You know, when you're reading it, you're, you're realizing things about, about yourself, about the world. You're realizing possibilities. You, you know that you're not alone. I think above all else, it was the feeling that I wasn't alone in feeling the way that I was feeling about life, about love, about heartbreak, about grief, about family, about self-love as well. All of that kind of stuff. You just know, you're like, all right, cool. Other people are going through the same thing and they have found words um, to to help navigate through the through the murkiness of this of this um experience. How do they influence your work, and how has your taste expanded? It made over me time? brave. Mm. It made me brave. It made me want to figure out my own way of of speaking in poetry. It made me want to listen to listen closer to the voice that I had inside me and to cultivate that voice. I didn't feel like I had to sound like anybody else. I didn't feel like I had to write poetry that that was acceptable to people because it, it, it felt like closer to the works of all the dead white people that, that I had read. I spent a lot of 2010 to like 2014 writing poetry that was so steeped in in my experiences in Nigeria to, that spoke a lot to just me being Nigerian because there was a lot of that I realized that over the years had had been etched away from me just by being in this country, you know? And, and I wanted to reclaim some of that back and, and, and pay homage to, to, that, to that side of me. When we first started speaking, it sounded mm -hmm. like this work has a very British, it's very British. And when you read it, it seems to have a very British outlook. Hearing you talk about your influences and also the poets that you cite and reference and you give credit to in this collection, mm -hmm. They're very, mm -hmm. they're very varied from different nations as well. So my question to you is this, to the reader who is reading Poor, your collection, and looking at it from a very British lens, how mm. does your work speak to the international stage? And where does your work fall into within the, the canon of poetry, either British canon or the international poetic mm. canon? Regardless, it's always going to be international. One sits inside the other. Britishness sits inside of international, internationalness, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, but essentially with this, I'm a Nigerian living in Britain. I was born in Nigeria. Um, and, but the majority of my life has been lived in, in Britain. So I'm speaking as a Nigerian British person. The book feels Nigerian British to me because a lot of the references, there are a lot of Nigerian influences there on an explicit level and also on an implicit level as well. I think we all know the conundrum of when you live in this country for too long, you cease to be Nigerian when you go back. And then when, you, <laughs> when you're here anyway, you're not British because you came from Nigeria. So it's a, it's a double whammy. And I put the two together um, as, as a Nigerian British uh, writer. Um, yeah, I think it's important to draw from various influences um, and, to, and to have that reflecting in, in the work because 
we're not a monolith as black people. We have various interests. Sometimes that spans as far as Japan and, and anime culture. Um, sometimes that will take you to, to India. Sometimes we'll take you to Australia. Um, we are global participants. Um, there is nowhere in this world that you can't, there's no country in this world that you won't find a Nigerian. Do you know what I mean? I've been to Finland and I'm walking down the street and I'm hearing someone speak Yoruba. And I said, only, only, it's only Nigerians that every single country in the world, one of us will go there and will live there. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, so, so I think more than anything, there's something very um, outward looking about Nigerians. Shara's lullaby um, was was included in that because that's relevant, you know. It's relevant to me and it's relevant to a, a lot of people. When I was younger, growing up in in Nigeria, I lived with my my grand uh, grandma, my uncle. My uncle had at least almost a hundred uh, films, uh, kung fu films. He was obsessed <laughs> with kung fu films. And then on the other side of his cabinet, he was obsessed with Bollywood. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's a very Nigerian thing because when I was growing up, um, there were two of Fridays were Bollywood nights. So they showed Bollywood films on Fridays and they also showed Kung Fu films on one of the days of the week. So exactly. we grew up yeah. on a diet. Those two, yeah, those two. <laughs> exactly. You know, so, so we have that within our culture, you know, we embrace other cultures and, and we're very, we explore in that way. Um, and uh, and I, I guess I'm a child of Nigeria because I'm doing the same thing in this <laughs> as well. <laughs> I ask you to pick a book that articulates the linguistic tone and narrative format of poor, and I ask you to pair it with a song that evokes a similar, if not the same, atmosphere. Oh, this this one was 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 very difficult. All right, so I'll start with a book. The book is uh, Claudia Claudia Rankin's um, Citizen. I think there's something structurally similar. Claudia's work feels very like an interesting hybrid of poetry, prose, prose, poetry, and essays as well, which I really appreciate about that work. She also uses photography and art in general in the work. Song-wise, I have to really bring it back to the grassroots of like Black British songs. There's a song called Pain is the Essence by gigs, which many people consider to be the national anthem of uh, South London, which I subscribe to. <laughs> if you know about me, then you know that my family has got a lot. Pain is the essence, the game is a lesson. Valley, us a mistake you've been making. Aiming the lesson. So the thing about that song, it just captures the life and times the of, game of is a lesson. growing up on, on an estate in 2007. Is there a particular lyric from gigs pain is the essence that first line pain is the essence is is one that um that resonates a lot um with me and it's not it's a, a lot of people can look at that and interpret it with, with like this heavy grievous um interpretation that oh pain but it's more of just like the essence of this is an accepted state the essence of 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 where we live in the conditions of that we live in is is painful however we find a way to survive and thrive in spite of it um which essentially 
is what makes the song so magical. So how does how does Pain is the Essence speak to the linguistic tone and narrative format of Paul? And also, also I ask this, the reason why I ask this question is because to encounter and engage with a collection is to notice the very many different ways in which words can be manipulated in which um, the, the the phrase I used when I I sent you the question and explaining why I asked the question was that um, that in my opinion poor is a bold and experimental collection and to me I feel that in this piece you deconstruct reconstruct and morph new language to accommodate over overlooked and under discussed communities in this piece that's what I feel like you did Right. I know what you're trying to say. The tone and the, the, the language come in, in this song is directly reflected in all the newness that exists in, in the collection. The language that this community uses, the way that they communicate with one another um, and the tone of uh, the atmosphere, how, how to carry the atmosphere into the page is something that this song does. So yeah, to answer that, I know you've got, you might have a second part to that question. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't let you finish. Because I was going to forget. I was like, I have to say it now or I'll forget. No, I get it. I get it. It feels like I've asked this question previously, but I just want to ask again. So when a writer, when a reader is reading your work, a reader who is not used to these non-traditional experimental style of mm -hmm. textual self-expression, Mm -hmm. what would be your I don't know so if a reader is like struggling to engage with a piece what would mm -hmm. be your 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 what would you say to them when you when you're reading something and you don't know the, the words to something you just google it don't you you're just looking at dictionary you're like I don't care so read it engage it <laughs> yeah because when we growing up isn't that what we have to do nobody says oh, this is what Keats is trying to say. Nobody gives us a, a glossary in that way. We have to find a way to understand it. Do you know what I mean? We ask questions, we, we do our research. And, and if there's anything about the collection that feels impenetrable, well, go and learn. You know, do you know what I mean? it's interesting to me that that is how you interpreted my question. Because oh, right. ah, okay. you betrayed yourself. Ah. Let's do it again. Let's do it, Let's do it again. <laughs> the reason why I asked the particular question is because in the poem community, it is written in the style of prose, but the the sentences are broken down with slashes. So fucking who's chatting shit? Slash, I'll bang you in the throat if you're chatting shit. Bang, fuck, bounce your head off the concrete. Bounce, you know what? What ends you're from? slash this is my block slash fucking the end. do you know what i mean so it's like it's it's a monologue that's broken down with slash and then there was another piece that i was like what is this man doing to me <laughs> um it's untitled this piece is untitled page 44 um all oh, right yeah see yeah. i didn't even have you just i was like you're like yeah yeah, yeah that one that one that one yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know See, yeah. you know what you're doing because I said page 44, <laughs> you knew what I was saying, what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's fragmented. It is fragmented yeah. words. So the first time I encountered it, I thought to myself, do I read this poem horizontally or vertically? Mm. Um, so Spirit, mm. if you read it vertically, it makes sense. If you mm -hmm. read it horizontally, it makes sense. 
if you're really diagonally, it makes sense. <laughs> it does. You know, spirit mm. dancing, two gun stepping, get your cousin, Harlem shaking, their man lost it, bring the fire, text a group chat, spark the wires, yeah. you know, but no answers. Mm -hmm. No matter how you, you can read it upside down as the winds <laughs> don't, she know that things are... Do you know what? I, anyhow you read it, it yeah. makes sense. Mm -hmm. But it is written in fragmented forms. It sounds like a rap, where it, it's like... Duh, 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 duh. <laughs> Spirit dancing, lit house party, tent of shopping, Harlem shake. Ah, I said it! Ah! I, I'm a rapper. Thanks to Caleb for the I'm a rapper. Ah. <laughs> oh my God, I see yeah. what you did there. It's a house party. Yeah. You're bopping yes. to the truth. <laughs> exactly, yes. Mm -hmm. like, uh, phonetically they all have the same syllables as well so it, it forces you to rap <laughs> essentially it forces you to to mimic the 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 musicality of a house party. but it also forces you it's a, it also forces you to take up the british cadence as well yeah yeah definitely, because yeah, you can't like yeah. okay i'm gonna do my fake american accent spirit dancing <laughs> late house party it doesn't work yeah it doesn't yeah <laughs> Yeah. It doesn't work. You've got to do that. It's like, ah! Yeah. It's a rascal yeah. in my head. Ah! <laughs> I got stones in my head. Ah! <laughs> you know, and then, uh, why am I so excited? I don't know. And then, <laughs> um, page 20, Collective Noun, a play by an onlooker. An onlooker. Yes, you sort of pay homage to Susan Laurie Parks, the American playwright, but it is a one page, it's a dialogue between two CCTV cameras witnessing police brutality or two CCTV cameras witnessing a violent incident between uh, between the powerful... Police brutality, that's exactly... Oh, wait! <laughs> Caleb is like, Sarah, mm -hmm. stop sugar coating all these things. I said what exactly. I said. I said what I said. I said what well, I that's said. That's even a murder. Ah! It's a real thing. It happens. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Everything in a book is actually real, which is so annoying about just the state of everything, you know? Oh. Yeah, that happened a few years ago. It was on the news. Um, and there was the CCTV cameras that was showing the incident. It happened in Shoreditch. So the more I think about it, the more I realise how how complex yet simple your work is is and so the quite the reason i asked you about the the linguistic tone and narrative format of the text is i want to know how you came to this process how did you form it what sort of carving did you do and to me it's even more interesting that you said that a lot of the pieces in this collection are inspired by real life events so how did you process these events how do you separate your emotion from your creativity and how do you then fashion your creativity and mold and shape and i imagine you to be a a mason who is chiseling rocks and chiseling rocks into beautiful sculpture with your poet with your poetry so how do you do that in terms of linguistic tone and narrative format or in in your poetry a lot of people say separate the emotion from 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 the self and when you're writing but i actually feel like the job of poetry is to communicate the ineffable. Emotions at their rawest state are beyond words. So with that in mind, how do you use language, which is already um, a poor tool of communication, when you speak words, 
those words don't always capture the exact, exact feeling that you have inside of you, right? Words is a, is a, is a failed state of communication, but it's the only one that we, it's the one that we, we use the most, right? Um, so how do we then find a way to capture the feeling, the, the emotions within, within us, the, the happiness, the joy, the, the, the anger, the grief, uh, the sadness, all of that, how do we bring that state, that non-existent physical um, human experience into a physical state, you know, using words. Um, and the only way to do that is to, is to challenge the way in which you communicate, the way that you write poetry, the forms that you use. Um, there is an entirely new thing that is happening here. So therefore the old tools of communication, the old techniques of poetry, the old forms may not always suffice. So therefore you have to build new ones. Sometimes you just have to tweak existing ones. Other times you have to build from scratch. Sometimes in the, in the collection, some of the forms in which I've adopted in the structures are very similar to other ones that are already pre-existing. Um, and then sometimes they feel entirely new because this is a new, we're living in an age where the way that we consume reality is different from any other in, in, in the history of, of, of humans. Um, we have social media, we have technology that allows me to speak to someone that's 20, 20 hours away at the same time, instantly. So therefore the way that we experience stuff is, is different. Um, at, but so our language and our, our artistic forms has to catch up to that. Poetry has to catch up to that, you know? Um, and, and therefore this is, this is kind of was at the heart of, of my approaches with stuff, you know? By the way, spirit dancing, spirit dancing, this half party, tendition. If someone who is unfamiliar with British rap scene, my hands up, even though I'm faking with that spirit dancing, da 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 da. Which song would you say is the perfect instrumental to spirit dancing? Ooh, perfect instrumental. Or a, a, that uh, evokes that sort of the, the vibe of spirit dancing. Uh, instrumental, it would have to be to, uh, Giggs is talking the hardest. If you're talking the hardest, Giggs better pop up in your thoughts as an artist. Jeez! Talk in the market, everybody wants to know where walk in the park is. Walk in the party, sport in the money. So if you could, if you could read Spirit Dancing from page four, people who have poor by Caleb Femi, it is on page 44. Spirit Dancing, Lit House Party, Tento Shuffling, Harlem Shaking, Two guns stepping, tempers bussing, broken glasses, them man lost it, get your cousin, text the group chat, get the man them, bring the fire, tea from burners, spark like wires, feds roll up and man turn liars, order questions, but no answers, mad mad angry, sad sad family, so much money, spent on casket, dance at nine night, till the sunset, then the sunsets, foolish mother, thinks her son's dead, why she crying? Don't she know that he still lives on as the wind he's spirit dancing, spirit dancing. Come the flip on, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> and they're teaching us WB Yates at school. Well done to them. Because this book is very much about young black male. It's a, yeah. the, the women feature, but the women are more or less on the periphery. And sometimes the women happen off the page. The women are sort of mm. referenced in relation to their relationship with the men. Mm. And there is, uh, and also the mother's relationship with the son features a lot in the poetry. From my analysis of the pieces in the collection, the mother mm. plays a role of the provider. She plays mm. a role of the mourner. She is brought into the scene in as, in as far as the pieces are concerned when a tragedy strikes or a tragedy happens and then she's mm. responding or she and, and or the reader is called to imagine the mother's response to it. Are you able to speak about the familial relationship? in the collection mm. and also the gendered relationship in the poems in the collection please first of all it was, a, it was a conscious decision not to speak for women in in this because i i think often and none you you find that men do it terribly and have no business doing it in the first place i think the the, the experience is is different and therefore it should be told um by by a woman um, by a woman writer and and I should allow space for that and also if 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 there is going to be a conversation that is gendered it should be one um, wherein we 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 have an insular conversation as as young boys as men as people of that gender where we question our relationship with women the way that we um, behave towards women how we treat women so a lot of the poems is, is, is quite like chirps, for example. It's like, okay, cool. Why do we as men call women after body parts? Why do we call them in this derogatory manner? This is, this is not for women to do the heavy lifting for us and to call us out. It's for us to call ourselves out in it. And often and none in the, um, in the collection, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to have a, a conversation amongst amongst men and boys to think about our relationship with our women and improve and do better and the relationship with with um with our mothers was one that i, I wanted to touch on because there was so this is where we lo we learn love from here we we um we think about our actions a lot of the time uh solely about ourselves and um, um, how that affects us. Um, and we talk about our traumas and, and how we're going through them, how we're navigating them. But we forget that our trauma is a contagious thing. Every time something happens to us, um, our family members catch it. And often or none, it's our mothers who, who, um, who catch it first after us and, and feel it sometimes more than us. Your collection of poetry, Paul, it is interspersed with poet with um, photography. And sometimes the photograph speaks directly to the poems in the piece. And so I ask you, so I ask you that, given that Paul marries poetry and photography, choose a song that conveys how both art forms speak to each other in the collection oh this one this was a hard one um, they're all hard i haven't heard you say this was an easy one <laughs> they were, no they were they were difficult i wanted to pick a song that kind of had 
an element of soundtrackness to it as well in terms of like it could also work in in a film and also that just spoke to that just spoke to um that just just spoke to this like visual language um where you can like you can feel you can feel the song and you can hear the song and you can see the song um there's a visual evocation evoking sorry um when i first heard the song in my head i just saw it i saw the visualness of it so <laughs> whiz kids of course of course i love it <laughs> <laughs> I think that it's a song that you you can in your head you're seeing it you can it's a visual song because it's such a there's it's such a lived experience for for many of us um especially many of us Nigerians where we just we can we can hear the song we can see the sorry we can see the song you know um yeah so yeah that 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 is one thing I'll, that's that's the song mm. that's the song because poor is a collection that centers architecture in it i think that if one is looking for a piece that speaks directly to a place but not a place as um not a place in an abstract in an abstract form you are literally mm. speaking to a place in concrete form mm -hmm. form in terms of the intentionality behind the construction of the place mm. form in the sense mm. of how the inhabitant of that space navigate navigates the the confines of that space and the conversations between home and outside what is home you know how home can be a place of freedom and home can be can feel like a constricted place or a place where one is imprisoned you know um Ojo Alegba sort of opens speaks directly to that as well because in the video in the song Whiskey is telling you about where he grew up, how that place, still speaking of poor, Ojoelegba is considered a, a place, an impoverished place in Lagos, Nigeria. And Whiskey is telling you of his transcendence from that space. I celebrating his, his space of origin to where he is now, but he's saying, don't look at where I am now, look at where I came from, because where I came from is what inspired me and is very much a part of who I am. You know, I think that is, oh my goodness, that's such a great, great, great song. <laughs> um, and I'm so glad I asked this, that question because it, it introduced us to, I think that Ojo Legba is a soundtrack to Paul, but that's just me anyways, that's just me saying it. Um, so <laughs> I'm glad we, we're able to agree on that. <laughs> so how does your, the poetry and photography speak to each other in Paul and in the collection Paul? And you are the photographer as well. Uh, who yeah. took those photos how did they speak to each other and how did you then how did you decide to pick what was your process of deciding which photographs to include in the collection and and, um, and your placing of the photographs as well um the placing was was a tricky one because often and none you like 
there's a there's a there's a, there's just an art to it. You don't want to you don't want to create something that feels um, like I wanted. Okay, so for me, the function of the of the of the photography was to police people's imagination um, on a visual level. When you think about poor people from council estates, there's years, there's an archive, years of, of images that you have di di digested, um, years from like the media, what they show you is mug shots or, or photos of like aggressiveness or, or photos that convey a threat, you know? Those are the images that are in our heads. I don't want you to have that image in, in my head, in your head when you're reading the collection. I want you to see these people for who they actually really are. So that's what it is. It's a reminder of like who these people are. When when you're looking at these images here, I want you to see this image and not some image of like people crying or, or people sad. If you're looking at like, um, if we're talking about like, you know, the hoodie and, and whatnot. All right, cool. Let's look at let's look at the, the facelessness of it. Do you know what I mean? Let's look at the fantastical nature of it, how the, how the mystic element of, of people whose faces are, are covered up, et cetera, et cetera. Also shout out COVID because that's really normalized everything. Now, um, this image of like people having a, having a good time, having, you know, enjoying themselves. Um, we're all just, for the sake of of reminding people that these are real people we're talking about here, you know, these are real black people, and they're not just caricatures. They're not just one-dimensional um, images of thugs and brutes. Mm. And in page one hundred and one, um, the poem is titled "The First Time You Hold a Gun." It is, it is um, the picture that speaks to it. It's one of you as a young person in an arcade. And um, the game next, the game that you're posing by is called Gunmen Wars. I mean, how did you find that photo? And how did you know, did you remember that photo? How did you, how did you know that this photo existed that it spoke directly to this poem? Because they speak directly to each other. The, the childish innocence, um, the child having fun and with his child with a bright future ahead of him. And because we know that this is you, in a way you're speaking, because we know as the reader that this is you because the photograph is in, the, your author photograph is in the back of the book, we can sort of insert our meaning to the poem that we're reading. And so you are explicitly policing our imagination in that, like you said. So, but then again, like, was it serendipity that you, um, and I'm just asking for myself, was it serendipity that you- uh, No, 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 I knew, I knew of the image and I saw that image years ago and I said to myself, it's, it's ironic because there's a, a whole big conversation about knife crime and gun crime and all these things and, 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 and how, how, oh yes, people from this uh, area engage in this thing. Um, but there's never a question on on the on the the mainstreamness of this beyond beyond um, the beyond the beyond the the discussion of of crime or whatever and violence, you know, you that's a children's arcade, and you're playing a game called Gunmen Wars. Do you know what I mean? Um, 
because to you it's a game to you is something that you can make money from to you is something that you don't question how it contributes to a culture of violence do you know what i mean to the government they okay that they tax that that's okay because they're making money off it it's taxed it's the gaming industry um but the reality of that game which is directly um which directly implicates the governments and they're failing is one that nobody wants to talk about however anyone wants to talk about how young people have access to these violent um, tools. Because we began, the first work you read was A Designer Talks of Home and A Resident Talks of Home. And that work features in two parts. I already knew I wanted to bookend this conversation with that, with the, with the collection. Also because with photography as well, A Designer Talks of Home slash A Resident Talks of Home, there is a photograph that speaks directly to the second part of the poem. So speaking of photography, and art, uh, photography and the work of poetry speaking to each other. I would like you to read in closing of this conversation, a designer talks of home slash a resident talks of home. And also, could you give context about the phot the photograph that you chose to go with this piece? Because they, 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 they put next to each other, they're placed next to each other. And if you can please describe the photograph as well for listeners. So the photograph is of uh, a Nigerian, a young man, a Nigerian young man, han handsome young man. <laughs> uh, his name is Deji. I felt the there was something about him. I say I say it all the time that feels regal. There's something about him that feels um, luxurious, and I love that about his look. Um, so when when I took a photo of him, it felt like it needed to sit here because here's a here's a, a man um, that carries an air of of dignity and 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 carries a very imposing air um, air of just uh intrinsic affluence and um, that's the richness of his skin tone um the there's something there's something that feels quite royal about his facial structure as well his high cheekbones etc etc um so yeah so i wanted to 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 put that next to a conversation about about ultimately about luxury a conversation about standard of living about quality of life in, and, and materialism as well. A designer talks of home, a resident talks of home too. I grew up in a part of London that was filled with derelict house, houses. To see what a building could have such an impact on the way people felt, on the way they interacted. The lift never works, so you take the stairs. Sometimes you pass your neighbors and catch up on the news. You really need to choose materials that are functional yet luxurious. Like the other day, I see man like Tevin in a Gucci tracksuit, Egyptian cotton with the Balinces. He looked the beauty of these things, mad stressed. Ain't seen him since he started linking that rich girl. This is a place to make them feel human. Stayed at her place for two weeks, said he didn't mean to. Her pillows were goose feather. We understand materials best by contrast. Rough feels rougher by contrast with smooth. Said her mates kept calling him Tyrone. One asked if he stabbed someone before and everyone laughed, didn't answer. Next morning, his girl asked him again. 
less about aesthetics and or appearance. A Gucci tracksuit just looked like a regular tracksuit when Tevin wore it. But much of it, but much more about making an environment that made people feel better after they had been there than when they arrived. Said he felt strange every day he stayed at her place. It's about when people walk in there, they don't know why they feel the way they feel. Couldn't put his finger on it. Just knew he couldn't stay there ever again. It's actually all been orchestrated. Design that encourages people to be close together is a good thing. He went back to the one bedroom flat he shares with his mum, dad and four siblings. Which book would you recommend to people who wish to read something similar to Paul? Um, I would recommend, which book would I, I would recommend Jay Bernard's Surge. Um, definitely, I would recommend um, Ray Antrobus's, uh The Perseverance. Rachel Long has a new collection called My Darlings from the Lions. I think. I think that's the full name. Um, and Kayo Chingonji's work as well, any of his work. Some Bright Elegance is his first uh, pamphlet that is, sits with me forever. Thank you so much for your knowledge. I've learned a new word today, psychogeography. Who knew? Thank you for immortalising just our presence in your work and being, unap being unapologetic in how you do it. So... Deeply appreciative of you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Rhymes, the podcast with Caleb Femiyaz. Poor is an exciting body of work and you can win one of two signed copies of the collection by subscribing to our mailing lists for which the link is in the episode description follow us on instagram and twitter at books and rhymes where we will post details on how to win the second signed copy the winner will be announced on monday 26th of november listen to caleb femi's playlist via link in the episode description share your thoughts on this episode by tagging us on twitter and instagram at books and rhymes subscribe Rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast listening platform. Yarns! <laughs>
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 